everyone, and welcome to a conversation about the future of White House regulatory oversight in the new Biden administration. I'm Adam White, director of Scalia Law School's Seaboy and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. My pleasure to welcome you and our featured speakers to today's discussion. This is the first in a series of webinars that we're going to be hosting over the next several weeks to consider various aspects of regulatory policy in the Biden administration. I'll say a little more about the series at the end of today's event, but let's move right away to the subject of today's discussion. For four decades, White House regulatory oversight has been a central mechanism of public administration. The Reagan administration, drawing from its predecessor's experience, first instituted the modern framework for the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, or OIRA, in 1981, and subsequent administrations have largely maintained that framework, though with reforms and refinements along the way, especially President Clinton's Executive Order 12866. So what should we expect from the Biden administration, both in reforming or repealing the Trump administration's own reforms, or in making new reforms of its own? To discuss these questions and more, it's my pleasure to introduce three scholars who have written incisively about public administration, cost-benefit analysis, White House Regulatory Oversight. We've posted their biographies on our webpage for this event, so here I'll just briefly say a few words. Michael Livermore is a professor of law at the University of Virginia. Before that, he was the founding director of NYU's Institute for Policy Integrity, and he's the co-author of uh, the new book that I'm sure we'll be discussing. Jennifer No is a professor of law at the University of Chicago. Before that, she served in OIRA as a policy analyst special assistant to administrator Cass Sunstein. Stuart Shapiro is a professor and associate dean of faculty at Rutgers University's Blaustein School in Planning and Public Policy. From 1998-2003, he also served in OIRA as a policy analyst. Now, welcome, everyone, and let's start with a broad question. As we look ahead to President Biden's oversight of administrative agencies, what do you see the most important issues or challenges awaiting the new administration? We'll start with Mike. Great. Well, thanks so much, Adam, and thanks for um, pulling this together into the Gray Center for hosting this important conversation. Looking forward to um, chatting with you all. So, uh, you know, very, very quickly, because there's obviously a lot of a lot of terrain to cover. Um, you know, I kind of bucket the uh, the challenges that the Biden administration will face, or what I see as the agenda before the Biden administration, into three general categories. Uh, one is to undo um, or reverse the harmful practices um, regarding regulatory review, but really kind of specifically with respect to cost-benefit analysis and the practice of cost-benefit analysis that we've seen over the last four years. And happy to talk in, in more detail about uh, what some of those might be and, uh, and so on. But that's kind of agenda item number one is to reverse um, uh, a mistaken um, direction of the of the prior administration. Uh, a second broad category I see um, before this administration is to update cost benefit analysis uh, techniques in important ways. Um, so just to give uh, one example, the A4, the circular A4. Uh, I call it the its friends call it the A4 circular, but it, I think it's officially the circular A4 is the guidance document that describes. Uh, uh, how agencies should conduct cost-benefit analysis. It was adopted uh, in the early years of the George W. Bush administration. So uh, it's a very important document. There's lots of good stuff in there, but um, many of these methodologies uh, have been improved over the years. There have been new insights uh, uh, by scholars and practitioners. And so um, 
working to ensure that agencies are using the most updated techniques, I think, is another important agenda item for this administration. Uh, and then the third bucket is this, um, a broad, again, a kind of a broad list of important new directions or important um, innovations for this administration, not just kind of updating the way things are done, but maybe there are uh, important innovations. And so two that are perennial topics of conversation in the administrative state are retrospective review and program evaluation and um, uh, and then uh, distributional analysis. And there's many, many things to say about both of those topics. And so really, I'm just kind of putting them on the table as, as two examples of areas where this administration might want to push the ball forward uh, in important ways. So those is kind of a conceptual ordering, I think, of a very full plate uh, for this administration um, to get started with. Thanks, Mike. And let me just add, uh, I alluded to his new book. I'll just point out that it's recently released. He co-authored it with uh, Richard Revez of NYU. And the book is titled Reviving Rationality, Saving Cost-Benefit Analysis for the Sake of the Environment and Our Health. A few weeks ago, I did a podcast with uh, Mike and, and Professor Revez. And so if you want to learn more about the book, uh, you're practically on a book tour these days, Mike. So it's not hard to find him, but uh, do check out our podcast. Maybe next on the broad question of setting the table, we'll turn to Stuart. Stuart, what's awaiting the next administration? So in, in terms of regulatory review, I think uh, I agree with everything uh, Mike said, um, but I think I'd characterize the biggest task as, as a more amorphous one, and that is sort of restoring faith in both the ideas of executive review and of cost-benefit analysis of regulations. Um, now, there's some people that will never agree with either of these concepts or these roles for OIRA. Um, and they've had a good four years because many of their criticisms have been borne out by the, uh, by the actions of the Trump administration. Um, and I think both of these ideas have taken some real blows to the idea of uh, executive review and to cost benefit analysis. Um, I'll give a, a quick example um, in, in terms of the quality of regulatory impact analyses. Um, I teach cost benefit analysis. I do it every spring and I was recently doing my syllabus and we end the semester with several case studies which the students examine and try to, to find fault with or praise or whatever. Um, and I have never had as hard a time as I did this semester in finding uh, RIAs done by the Trump administration um, that were meaty enough and substantive enough for them to actually learn something from looking at. Um, and I think that has become the norm over the past four, uh, four years. Um, of course, there's a bunch of new initiatives. Mike talked about reversals, um, 13771, the uh, Clean Air Act rule on uh, economic, using cost-benefit analysis and the sunset rule at HHS. I actually think these are the easy things to reverse, these sort of headline-type items um, between the executive orders, which can be reversed quickly, um, and the regulations, which may take more time, but may not, depending on their legal status in the Congressional Review Act. But rebuilding cost-benefit analysis and the reputation of OIR is going to take longer and may indeed be a project that will span the length of the Biden administration. Thanks, Stuart. I think we'll probably circle back to that in, in just a few moments. Um, but Jennifer, uh, what awaits the new administration? Yeah, so I think Stuart and Mike have already identified many of the most pressing issues. And um, in looking over my notes, I, I realized that the, the, the few others I would offer uh, 
conveniently start with P's. So they're the three P's. So um, <laughs> the first is, I think, you know, there's just a lot of these exigent circumstances that I think the Biden administration is going to be dealing with, okay, related to the pandemic. And, um, and I think that as a result, um, confronting these exigent circumstances with the regulatory state is going to require um, a, a, a turning of the ship of state during this transition that is going to uh, raise questions about kind of the um, staffing of a wire. And of course, I mean, really at the top of the administrator. And, uh, you know, if you look at the <clears throat> previous presidential administrations, you know, even with friendly um, aligned senates, you know, it took, uh, I think, about nine months for the first wire administrator to be confirmed. I think it was seven months or so for Rao to be confirmed in the Trump administration. So even under the best of circumstances, there's been a lag of the political appointee at the top. And I, and I think one pressing issue is getting that administrator confirmed as soon as possible so that, um, you know, somebody with that accountability and the imprimatur of Senate confirmation can really start to um, act um, and push the agenda forward of the Biden administration. Um, the second is, um, I think there's going to be a real push to um, get different groups involved and in participating, participation in the OIRA process. Um, uh, groups that haven't, um, certainly in the last administration, been a part of that process. And I think there's going to be a lot of creative thinking, both inside and outside of OIRA, to how to make OIRA more open to the public in this way. Um, whether that's, you know, um, marshalling Zoom and, you know, remote meetings to make these 12866 meetings by which, you know, a lot of these participants can meet uh, when, when um, OIRA is considering a role. Of course, there's mixed empirical evidence really more, more evidence that they're not that effective in practice, but at least maybe, you know, reducing the barriers of participation um, can, can start to get some of these groups involved. I think that there was some pushback on some of those ideas earlier, but maybe this is really the time um, to open OIRA up in that way. Finally, perhaps least interestingly, but, you know, it is certainly part of OIRA that many um, people talk about, if only because they deal with it every day, is the Paperwork Reduction Act. I think, um, that uh, especially in COVID times, you know, there's going to be a lot of push to get um, information both from the public. So for more generalists in the room, right, as we, as, as, as you may have heard, right, the PRA basically um, <clears throat> has a, a, a bunch of requirements for the federal collection of information, um, you know, including various notice and comment periods. And, um, you know, under, in COVID times, you know, there, there are a lot of statutory authorities that have been invoked because it's a public health emergency, to waive some of these PRA requirements. But, you know, as Stuart has written on and, and Stuart Wells know, knows as well, there are many other ways that a wire can fast track and, um, you know, not stand in the way at all of these collections of information to, to see whether the efforts that are being undertaken to confront these exigencies are really working or not. Well, thanks everybody. Um, I do. I should have noted at the outset for those who are, are listening or viewing, uh, if you would like to ask a question of your own, I'll ask some, but we're going to save time for Q&A, and I'm going to try to work audience questions in throughout the conversation. Um, just type them into the Q&A format, and, and we'll have them here, and the team will, will send them my way. Um, so that's how to ask a question. Now I'll ask my second question, which I guess is just for an elaboration of some of the points we've already heard. It sounds like what most immediately awaits the, the, the Biden administration in the eyes of, of, uh, of, of our speakers so far is, is looking back at the Trump administration and, um, and redoing or undoing some of the things that they've done. Um, now, needless to say, those who follow the, the, the Gray Center's work are, uh, probably know that I'm more favorably dis, uh, disposed towards some of the, the Trump administration's reforms 
um, than some of the criticism we've heard so far. But I'm very curious to hear uh, the speakers uh, unpack some of these things. Why don't we start uh, with Stuart? Stuart, you brought up some of the things that you think. Uh, well, actually, your your phrase was restoring faith in in OIRA and White House regulatory oversight. What's that going to take? What what what's what's restoring faith going to entail? So um, the the phrase most often used in describing the Trump administration has been uh, not normal. Um, And the question of sort of what's not normal and what's normal in the regulatory sphere over the past four years. And in the not normal category, I would put the things I already mentioned, the quality of the RIAs um, and the new initiatives that sort of put the benefit cost framework in general in question. Um, I'd also put um, the really poor record in judicial review that largely rests on their, uh, the Trump administration's very weak uh, following of the procedural requirements, not just cost benefit analysis, but also the Administrative Procedure Act. Um, and also uh, the pace of new rules. Um, uh, there's a lot of exaggeration about the Trump regulatory record, but one thing they 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 can say is that they issued fewer significant new rules um, over the over the past several years, and that was definitely something that was a departure from previous administrations, both Democratic and Republican. Um, in terms of what was normal. Um, the OIRA expansion of their powers uh, that didn't get much attention, but the uh, the memorandum of agreement with the Internal Revenue Service on regulatory review, I think that likely stays in place um, and, uh, and 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 will continue. Um, I think we'll probably also talk about independent agencies, which was not a formal change uh, in this administration, but maybe some of the groundwork was laid for that. Um, Within the agencies, reduced enforcement of regulation is fairly normal in a Republican administration. Um, And uh, and also the the lack of deregulation, despite the, the rhetoric. But cutting through this normal and not normal, what was sort of significant? I think I'd point to two things. Um, the first is the is the collective impact of these changes. Um, and the rhetoric surrounding them, which was to make sort of regulation much more performative over the last four years rather than substantive. Um, The actual policy changes that will last from the past four years, I think, are fairly limited, assuming that the Biden administration successfully reverses the ones that the courts uh, and Congress do not reverse on their own. But the perceived policy changes are huge. Um, People really do think that the Trump administration eliminated a lot of regulations and they really think that the economy, even as early before these so-called repeals took effect, um, the economy thriving was a result of these repeals. And there's very little evidence for either of of these assertions. Um, The second significant impact of the last four years, though, I think is substantively uh, real. And that is the reshaping of both the judicial and the executive branches. Um, I'm going to defer to the lawyers on the panel to talk about the impact of Trump's appointees to the courts. Um, But I'd also uh, highlight the hollowing out of the capacity in the executive branch, um, the demoralization of people that work there. And so I think a big question for the Biden administration is how does it get everything it wants to get done, done, um, including reversing the Trump actions, restaffing and remotivating the agencies and the many new initiatives that the Biden uh, campaign touted in the regulatory arena. Hey, Stuart, Mike, uh, I alluded to your book a couple of times. You dedicate a lot of uh, attention in that book 
to uh, criticisms of the way the Trump administration uh, carried out regulatory review. Again, we talked about that uh, on, on the podcast. Why don't you maybe summarize some of that and add any other thoughts you might have uh, for, for our, our audience in terms of things that the Trump administration did that you expect the, the Biden administration to need to take a look at? Great. Um, yeah, and I think, that, again, I kind of would bucket these under two general uh, general uh, categories. So one is like formal things the Trump administration did overtly where it where like the two for one uh, executive order or, you know, the, the EPA's recent uh, rulemakings on cost benefit analysis um, and on um, scientific transparency, the so-called transparency rule, uh, where the administration kind of took these overt steps that either de-emphasize cost benefit analysis or um, in some other way undermined the um, the general uh, thrust of the last, you know, the prior 40 years, several decades of uh, practice of cost-benefit analysis of being comprehensive and, um, you know, uh, focusing on, on maximizing well-being for the American people and so on and so forth. So so there are the general, the, sorry, there are the um, kind of specific actions um, that, that I mentioned. And then, um, as kind of Stuart was alluding to, there's just kind of the general practice of doing cost benefit analysis in a consistent and legitimate way. So I'll mention some of those examples there because I think those can be illustrative. So one issue that we talk about in the book is the use of co-benefits in cost benefit analysis. And this gets talked about quite a bit because it's an important uh, issue in, in cost benefit analysis, especially in uh, the environmental area. And what the Trump administration did here is it departed from, again, many decades of uh, past practice by administrations of both political parties, which is to engage in a comprehensive assessment of the costs and benefits of regulatory decisions when that's allowed by law. Um, and so instead, uh, and, and so that includes <laughs> uh, looking at both the direct effects and the indirect effects of regulation. Okay, so a direct effect um, let's just, you know, we'll use a concrete example. Um, in an Obama-era uh, rulemaking, there was an um, uh, EPA regulation to um, reduce emissions of mercury from power plants. The direct effect was reducing the mercury emissions and then, you know, the, the health and environmental consequences of that. But as an indirect effect of that regulation, particulate matter was also reduced and the mortality risk reductions from particulate matter uh, better, you know, improved uh, air quality from particulate matter uh, were an indir- indirect benefit of the regulation. And again, it's been established by administrations of both political parties and long practice to account for both indirect and direct costs and benefits. And that uh, language to that effect is included in the A4 circular that I mentioned that was adopted under the George W. Bush administration. Um, and so what, so what do we see under the Trump administration? How did they depart? So uh, several ways. So one is they explicitly rejected the use of um, co-benefits in valuing of that, that rule that I just described, the air toxics rule with respect to mercury. And they said, look, the, the particular matter uh, benefits are not direct, and therefore we're not going to take this into consideration when determining whether standards are appropriate and necessary. But, and so that's this huge departure that we really need to take a second and recognize, uh, again, from, from this very long standing practice. It's also departs from rationality because, you know, one would want to know about the effects of one's regulatory choices. That's the whole idea of cost benefit analysis, whether they're direct or indirect. But it gets worse because in other rulemakings, the administration took indirect 
benefits into consideration when it you know, pointed in, the, in that administration's favorite direction, which was deregulation. So again, very briefly, um, this was uh, done. One example is in the, in the car rule, which had to do with uh, auto, automobile efficiency standards. So in that rule, uh, it, was a, it was an Obama, again, re-undoing you know, or re- somewhat rescinding, rolling back to a degree in Obama administration regulation that improved fuel economy standards and reduced greenhouse gas emissions from automobiles. And in the Trump uh, effort to roll those standards back, one of the major benefits, the purported benefits of the Trump rollback was that there would be improved safety on the highways. Um, there would be fewer accidents because cars would be bigger and there would be less like, and there would be arguably fewer miles driven. It was, there was a lot of bad assumptions how they got to the conclusion (laughs) that there would even be these reduced fatalities, but even accepting their, those, that part of their analysis, which was actually quite flawed, the mortality risk reduction would be a co-benefit of the rollback. Okay. So what we get to is in the car context where co-benefits favor deregulation, the Obama or the Trump administration is happy to embrace them. And then in this other rulemaking where co-benefits uh, favored stronger regulation, the administration just, you know, passed them over. And so this is just one example of uh, actually a litany of other examples where just the basic P's and Q's of how you do cost benefit analysis, according to just regular mainstream economics that administrations and economists and just policy analysts of both political parties would agree to, was rejected by this administration and done in a very inconsistent way that was very clearly motivated with respect to outcomes rather than methodological uh, rationales. And so that's the kind of thing that this administration, I would hope, will very clearly uh, communicate that that's not the way that they're going to do cost-benefit analysis. Um, there's a new... Uh, there's a new chief in town, and um, and we're going to see a, a major shift there. Thanks, Mike. And I guess somebody asked in the in the Q and A, and the title of your new book is is reviving rationality, not to be confused with retaking rationality, which is the earlier book. Um, uh, and for those who are asking, yes, this discussion will be available. We're going to post a video, and also um, the audio will go out in our podcast. Jennifer, any thoughts on on things that the, the Trump administration, some of its reforms that, that the Biden administration might take a look at? Yeah, so I agree with everything that Stuart and Mike said. You know, I think, um, first of all, you know, a lot of the signature moves of the Trump administration, I think, are most definitely going to go. So, for example, the two-for-one executive order, I think, will be rescinded. Um, regulatory budgeting, I think, will also uh, likely go by the wayside. Um, certainly, regulatory reform officers, this is EO 13777, I think, is also likely to, to go for obvious reasons. It's not regulatory reform, Trump style. Um, and I agree with Stuart. I think that the MOA uh, with Treasury is likely to stay um, and I think the real question uh, for the Biden administration is, um, is this going to be a um, restoration to a pre-Trump era Obama uh, administration style OIRA? Um, and, and if so, what is the vision going forward? In other words, it's been well known that, um, you know, Republican administrations, OIRA is usually used as kind of a gatekeeper, a cost controlling mechanism for the administrative state. And, um, you know, it's been said that Democratic administrations have more of this coordination role. And I think, you know, really the question is going to be, is the Biden administration kind of a manifestation of that dynamic? Um, is it going to be coordination? Is it going to be agenda pushing? 
um, in ways that we might discuss, whether it's through prompt letters and really trying to move the ball forward, again, because of all of the circumstances that are happening now, you know, indeed Biden wants to build back better, but he wants to do it quickly. And, um, or by contrast, as I think many um, in the party and particularly the progressive wing, um, I think favors, is it really, a, is it going to be a vision of a wire just getting out of the way? That is to say, letting agencies kind of do the work um, in the way that they know best and a wire is really not, should not be there to put the brakes on any of that. And we're gonna, perhaps we will see quicker reviews or reviews with a lighter touch. I think that's gonna be kind of the, kind of the headline set of choices facing the Biden administration under OIRA and its version and vision of OIRA, really. If there's anything anybody else wants to add and sort of the look back part of this conversation, jump in. But let me just focus really quickly on, on the, the, the executive order uh, President Trump signed uh, that contained the, the, the regulatory budget component or, or what, what, what Michael in the book calls cost analysis and the, the so-called uh, two out, one in rule. Um, I, I don't presume, to say the least, the Biden administration is going to keep these. Um, but I, I think there's a case to be made, at least for the regulatory budget side, to say the least. I think it's a good adjunct to cost-benefit analysis, not a replacement for it, but another useful metric sort of standing apart from traditional cost-benefit analysis. And at the very least, I hope the Biden administration, as they as they come in and, and issue new sort of executive orders, that they'll at least sort of make an accounting, so to speak, of, of how things performed under under that Trump executive order. And hopefully, if they see anything worth keeping, keep it. Um, anyone want to disabuse me of that notion? Um, Mike, since you, or Jennifer, were you about to say something? Okay, Mike, do you want to jump in? Uh, uh, sure. So, um, well, I, you know, I, in the past, most administrations have built on the work of prior administrations with respect to cost-benefit analysis and regulatory review. That is the story that we see up until the Trump administration. So in some ways, if the Trump administration wasn't so strange and wasn't so abnormal, what the, if, if we had had, you know, if we had a more standard Republican administration or one that stayed within the bounds, then I think we would expect to see the Biden administration maintaining more continuity with what we've seen under the, what we saw, what we saw under the prior administration. And I think it is a testament to the degree to which the Trump administration departed from the general path that we've seen over the last 40 years, that the, the degree to which the Biden administration is going to reverse course on these things. Um, so with respect to the two for one and the, and the budget, so I just think two for one is just bean counting. doesn't make any sense. Like it doesn't have, tell us about the size of the regulation. It doesn't tell us about the costs and benefits of the regulation. It's just like the number of regulations, which I think is not a metric that has any value. With respect to a budget, so I think there are actually major advantages to cost-benefit analysis over a regulatory budget, which is why Reagan adopted cost-benefit analysis instead of a regulatory budget, which was proposed at the time by like folks like Chris DeMuth um, back in the 70s. And there's a reason that cost-benefit analysis was used. You need a lot less information, actually. It's a, it's, it's a much more it's a much more straightforward planning tool than a regulatory budget. Now, that being said, there is a mechanism which was has been used quite robustly over the years, fallen somewhat out of favor under the Trump administration again, which is an annual report to Congress about the costs and benefits of federal regulation. And that is, I think, probably the thing that's closest to a regulatory budget that makes sense. The, the, the OIRA, OMB, goes to Congress and says, these are the costs of the rules that we've implemented. These are the benefits. Take a look. Here's our priorities. 
Um, and here's what we're thinking about, you know, making changes and so on and so forth. And that's actually a, a document that's probably it's akin to a regulatory budget in certain respects. It takes some of the good good parts of that um, without some of the, the downsides. Stuart, did you have anything you wanted to add on this? Yeah, a couple things. I'm glad Mike uh, mentioned the annual reports. I was going to to do that. Um, I think there was only one day uh, in the Trump administration which annual reports actually came out. They released three of them in the middle of Christmas vacation last year, um, and the numbers were not even in the report. You had to go to a separate spreadsheet um, to try and figure out exactly what the costs and benefits um, of their uh, of their regulations were. I suspect that's because um, the reports generally show that even under the Trump administration. They issued a number of regulations and the benefits outweighed the costs. Um, But whatever the reasoning, um, you have to be someone who is sufficiently obsessed with these numbers like I am to try and go and find find them. And I'm really hoping that we get a return to annual reports that actually are clear about um, the results of of agency regulations. I'll make one more point, um, building on what Jennifer said earlier, uh, that the, the Biden administration has, has a choice. And if they go in the direction of OIRA as merely sort of facilitator um, and just get regs through and, and help them, then I think they will clearly get rid of a regulatory budget. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it doesn't really have a place in a function like that. If, as I suspect, they try to return to the uh, to the Obama model of, of of OIRA, mixing a coordinative function with some of the traditional regulatory review functions. Um, they're going to be disappointed progressives out there. And one way you mollify progr- disappointed progressives are to get rid of things like two for one in the regulatory budget. So uh, yeah, Adam, I, I don't think the regulatory budget, just because of the politics of it, has much of a future. Now, I'm not much of a fan of it either, um, but e- even putting that aside, um, I, 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 politically, I do not see how they keep the regulatory budget. And I just want to emphasize just one theme, because I, I too, was going to um, mention the, the um, annual report, which is just to point out the vast difference between an annual report that kind of ex post reports on, you know, the, the you know, costs and benefits of regulations that have already been implemented versus kind of an ex-ante regulatory budget that, you know, constrains the agency's ex-ante about, you know, exactly, you know, what costs um, it, it can impose. And I just wanted, the theme I want to emphasize is that we are in such a period of uncertainty. I mean, because of the pandemic, because of all the financial consequences um, of it, that I think it's going to be even harder for the Biden administration, ex ante, to be able to say, hey, agencies, here are the, you know, the X number of, of costs or the budget that we're going to allow you to have when you undertake and think about regulations. Yeah, maybe we'll stick with you for the next question now. Looking forward at how the, the Biden administration might sort of structure OIRA or, or what it might do to implement some of the tools that we've discussed so far. You've been writing about this for years, the relationship between the White House and the WIRA and the agencies, and sort of the practical reality of, of realities of regulatory oversight. So looking forward, how might you suggest uh, the, the Biden administration, I want to try this again, what reforms uh, or suggestions might you have for just the basic structure and operation of WIRA from the White House? Yeah, so I take part of your question to sort of be alluding to the intra-executive branch process, that is, how does OIRA actually work with the White House and the different agencies as it coordinates its review? 
And I think first it's worth observing that just every administration has to restructure this relationship because often new administrations create new entities, you know, within the executive office of the president. So we've already heard, for example, how Biden is going to be creating, for example, you know, this office of domestic climate policy headed by Gina McCarthy. You know, there's just going to be new entities that are involved that are going to have to be brought in um, to the coordination process. And I think that, um, you know, my previous point about the transition kind of related lack of Senate confirmed political appointees is going to make this question kind of difficult, especially in the next you know six months or so until we get a Senate confirmed um, uh, administrator about exactly you know who sh- who gets to be at the table right and at what level of the agency you know is are are, are um, you know acting's uh, going to be uh, have the authority you know kind of to kind of make these decisions and to resolve any conflicts that might arise between the agencies. So again, the first point is, is just that there's going to be a necessary restructuring because there are new entities. There's going to be a lot of, um, kind of uncertainties related to um, the lack of Senate confirmation and the transition related standing up, if you will, of the Biden administration. And then um, finally, I think there are also going to be questions about um, how much disclosure to make about this process. Um, so I think there's been a lot of talk and debate for years now about um, finally uh, having the executive branch follow um, Section 6 of EO 12866, which, you know, calls for, you know, after the OIR process to conclude the disclosure, right, the publication of all the documents that were exchanged between the agencies and OIRA. And um, that has never really been enforced. Um, you know, there have been leaks here and there. And, you know, there's been calls by many outside of um, OIRA to finally um, have that be enforced. And I think um, the Biden administration uh, may want to consider uh, having more of that transparently to Stewart's point about, you know, restoring the legitimacy of OIRA to show that, you know, what often goes on is not nefarious, but rather genuinely um, a lot of the kind of the information aggregation function that Cass Sunstein has written about. I think that there is um, some of that disclosure would actually help OIRA, not necessarily hurt it. Jennifer, maybe just one more point. Um, in our conversations ahead of time, uh, you alluded to OIRA's relationship to some of the parts within the White House, some of the coordinating councils. Uh, there's the familiar Domestic Policy Council, National Economic Council. And, and as if I read the news correctly, uh, President Biden isn't going to institute a climate council, but he has um, brought back the position of you know, White House climate coordinator, both for domestic policy and then former Secretary Kerry in, in uh, foreign policy. So how, how do you think OIRA ought to interact with, with those parts of the White House? Well, I think they'll be critical. So as I, as I already alluded to, the, you know, these, the climate um, change stars and the, the policy offices, I think that they will be a central part of the process. Um, you know, the Obama administration, you know, the implementation of the ACA, you know, a lot of the, uh, the health SARS were very important. I think similarly, because climate change is such a priority of the Biden administration, I think Gina McCarthy will have a very central role and should arguably, given that, you know, climate change related um, regulations are cross-cutting across agencies. And so um, I, I, I do think they, they will and should um, play an important role. Thanks. Maybe we'll, we'll turn to... Um... Uh, to, to Mike next. Mike, any thoughts on, on just the basic role of OIRA, how it can be restructured or reformed? We've already touched on this a little bit. I noticed in the chat, Richard Pierce um, asks why we should assume that benefit cost analysis will be kept at all, given the criticism it's taken um, 
from progressives over the years. And as you point out, your book um, uh, has uh, critics on the on the right as well. Also in the chat, Kristen Hickman asks whether we should have any confidence that, or why we should have any confidence that the Biden administration will keep the IRS sort of in under under the umbrella of OIRA with the the new memorandum of understanding. So, Mike, do you have anything for that? And maybe we'll turn to Stuart next on the same question. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would bet that we're going to see uh, continuity with pre-Trump administrations and the Biden administration uh, with respect to benefit cost analysis. Um, it's absolutely true that there are there have been consistent progressive cr- critics of cost-benefit analysis since uh, you know 1981, uh, and and that is carried through, and that carries through now. And there are folks within the Democratic coalition who have called for and will call for. Uh, eliminating OIRA or severely reducing its role or getting rid of cost-benefit analysis, um, replacing it with some other technique. That is, that's happened, uh, is happening and will happen. Uh, my sense, and I don't have any, you know, inside information on this, but my, um, I suspect that the Biden administration, like prior Democratic administrations, um, will resist those, um, uh, will resist those efforts and will maintain a, a robust practice of cost-benefit analysis. I just think there are, and, and definitely OIR review. There are very, very good structural reasons why presidents want a review office. And then the methodology of cost-benefit analysis, uh, ejecting that from the process of regulatory review, I think would be normatively problematic, but would just be politically foolish, um, given uh, that it would just open the administration up to, to claims that it was engaged in regulatory zealotry and all the kind of standard uh, uh, critiques that are raised against democratic administrations. And so cost benefit analysis serves as an enormously important, uh, response, uh, to those types of critiques where, um, you know, the Biden administration will be able to, if it maintains this practice, go and, and have a response. If it's, if there's some claim in Congress or in the public discourse that they're engaged in irrational and ridiculous regulatory zealotry, they can respond. Actually, <laughs> you know, the rules that we've adopted have very substantial uh, net benefits. We've conducted the analysis. We've done used the best science and the best economics. And so I think that uh, it's very likely that they're going to maintain uh, consistency with prior uh, administrations in that respect. Um, I'll leave it for the other folks about the, the, the IRS uh, uh, MOU. Um, I'll stop talking. Uh, Mike, before we turn to Stuart, did you have any thoughts on, on just the basic structure of, of OIRA? Anything they might do there? I, my guess is that it's, I mean, again, this is just you know, speculation. My speculation would be that it would remain largely the same. If there's always some question about uh, how OIRA fits in with, you know, the other White House offices. Um, but, you know, the, the, I think 12866 is going to stick around. The basic process of agencies being the uh, initiators of rulemakings and then then going to OIRA for review will probably stick around. I don't see a big resurgence of things like prompt letters, especially given these other White House offices. Um, they'll be prompting the agencies plenty, I think. Uh, so it's not clear that OIRA is going to have an additional role there. Um, and... Uh, yeah, and I think, and, and much will turn on who the administrator is, um, for sure. That that's always very important. And so, uh, having a a qualified um, person who you know carries some weight within the administration is going to be important. And Stuart. 
so yeah, my, my instincts largely uh, agree with, uh, w- with what Mike just said. Um, I, I, Sally Katzen, I think, said that if there was no OIRA, each administration would have to invent it on its own. Um, and the executive review function, as long as presidents are going to get blame or get credit for regulatory activities, they're going to want a ability to review what the agencies are doing. Um, and so I, I do think that that function will, will certainly remain. And, and my instinct's the same as Mike's. I do think benefit-cost analysis will remain as well for, for many of the reasons that, that he articulated. Um, the ability to be able to make the argument uh, that uh, the administration has improved the economy by regulating improved social wealth welfare um, by issuing welfare improving regulations, um, you know, whether or not that's true. And it, it, there's obviously a, a lot of, uh, packed in there. Um, but benefit cost analysis has consistently been used by the Clinton and Obama administrations toward that end. And, uh, and, and I think the Biden administration, which has largely started with a, a raft of appointees that have experience in the two previous Democratic administrations, are likely to, uh, to sort of stay on the path that those two administrations did where, where possible. Um, I, I also agree with Jennifer on the importance of the other, uh, the, the White House counsels. Um, when I was a desk officer in the Clinton administration, one of the things you had to learn right away was who in the, who in the various White House agencies you needed to run things by. Uh, you know, if you have a, a regulation under the new TANF statute at the time, there were people at the Domestic Policy Council that cared a lot about that. If you were doing something in healthcare, there were other people people that you needed. I, I suspect, and particularly as it pertains to climate, um, that that will be true in, in the current administ- in the incoming administration. Now, in the Q&A, uh, Professor Jeff Lovers has a couple questions about the OIRA's role, both as a coordinator and also as an initiator. He alludes to the prompt letters, which is something that came up in our, in our chat beforehand. Um, I don't know if anybody has any Further thoughts on this, on whether the Biden administration will or should rely more heavily on prompt letters and and what could be done to improve the the coordination aspect of things. Jennifer, you've already touched on this some, but do you have anything further to add, especially on the prompt letters? Yeah, so um, I do think that there is a kind of a sub-question here about uh, the extent to which prompt letters refer to the public document that is presented as a you know, public indication that OIRA has prompted something um, versus, uh, you know, internally, you know, when OIRA is prompting agencies to do things all the time. Um, I think if we're referring to the public document, if you will, I think, you know, you can observe that that was really used in a Republican administration. It was under John Graham that those were, were used. And I think the public function of that was to signal to the legitimacy point that OIRA was not just the gatekeeper, that OIRA, you know, is also you know, fighting the good fight and trying to serve this coordination function as well. Um, and so, in other words, even if we don't see public prompt letters under the Biden administration, I don't think that means that OIRA is not prompting or should not be prompting. And I think um, maybe to, to Michael's point a little bit, I do think that there is a separate role for OIRA and prompt letters apart from the councils because of OIRA's unique vantage point in seeing the different regulations come from the different agencies. I mean, the council kind of has that, but its access points because of the lack of this process, I think are, are much fewer. And so as a result, I think particularly with climate, um, OIRA is gonna be able to see the, the potential or the opportunities for coordination um, that council for doing something at a particular time, and then there will be these informal mechanisms 
of prompting. And the reason that we might see those informal mechanisms of prompting come public might again be because of a perception that um, the reputation of a wire is not matching the reality and needs to be corrected. Um, great. That's, can I just add one, one more quick thing to that, Adam? Sure, please. Yeah. So, um, so this is a really interesting point that the Jennifer makes about the informal kind of routes of coordination and informal prompting as well. And I think this is something that will be a big difference in the Biden administration versus the Trump administration and, and just kind of worth uh, emphasizing or, or raising is uh, I think folks in the White House and the political appointees at agencies are going to largely agree about a lot of things. And so they're going to be able to work with each other in a friendly and professional manner uh, to, to kind of move forward the, the administration's agenda. And a lot of that will be informal. Some of it will go through formal channels. But that will be a big change and just will be enormously useful and enormously beneficial for this administration to be able to do things. Because actually uh, an underappreciated, you know, we tend to focus, we're lawyers, we focus on the formal mechanisms, but just the kind of culture of collaboration and being on the same page is enormously important. And I, I suspect that's one that will be cultivated uh, from the top down. Of course, we'll have to see. Um, but I think that especially with Biden's um, experience in the prior administration, and as Stuart said, a lot of folks have experience working with each other in prior administrations, that's going to really redound to the benefit of, of, of the efficacy of this administration. So in addition to prop letters and things like that, um, one thing I've, I've paid attention to over the last few years has been the use of executive orders on substance, right? Um, President Obama had some of this. President Trump had a lot of this, especially early on in his administration, issuing executive orders aimed at subgroups of agencies, uh, departments, you know, gathered around a specific subject, whether it was financial regulation. Uh, there was the core principles on financial regulation. There was the, the, the um, executive order on, on energy independence and so on, where the president would sort of announce policy direction for the agency. And in some ways, I mean, very clearly, you know, a, a replacement for the behind the scenes discussions that might have happened. The President Trump just said publicly, here's what I want you to do to the maximum extent possible under existing law. Um, there's something to be obviously President Trump's relationship to the bureaucracy was different, to say the least. Um, but there was something to be said for any president to, to sort of make these judgments public and really, you know, show that the, the buck stops with, with him. Um, I mean, I, I grant Mike's point that it's good to have behind-the-scenes collaboration, but, but, Mike, isn't there something sort of extra value in, in the president and the White House saying these things publicly? I, I don't think there's any question that it's important for an administration to announce publicly its policy goals. Uh, I think the best time to do that is prior to an election so that the American uh, public has an opportunity to weigh in on that stuff. Um, but, um, but I don't think the earlier administrations were uh, shy about stating clearly what they wanted to accomplish, taking credit, you know, announcing regulations in the Rose Garden and all that kind of thing. Um, whether the, so I think the real question here is whether the format of the executive order is the right or best one. I don't know that I have a strong opinion about this. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to be biased by like an anti-Trump, everything he did was wrong heuristic. So I, maybe I'll just like kind of wait and let that percolate a little bit. But um, uh, so I don't have a strong prior about that. I think, but I take, take the general point that um, it's it's good for an administration to be clear about its priorities and to do and to make those public and 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 announce it to the world. 
and often referred to a presumption of irregularity. Like you might have a, just a presumption of irregularity that's it's it's rebuttable. So right, it's um, rebuttable. Stuart, do you have any thoughts on 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 what we're discussing right now? Sure, and uh, pick up on what Jennifer said earlier. I, I I was a fan of the prompt letters when uh, when uh, John Graham and initiated them, and in part for some of the reasons that you've articulated, Adam, that I do think it's not uh, not a bad idea to uh, to sort of have the administration out there saying what it wants done in regulatory uh, uh, policy. Um, the um, but to pick up on on Jennifer's point, I do think there are. Two, two other good aspects to prompt letters. One of them is there are things that OIRA is uniquely positioned uh, to sort of weigh in on and provide expertise on and to prompt on. To, to pick one example that's currently relevant, um, a prompt letter to reduce burdens in vaccine distribution um, to, to HHS would be, I think, a move that is very consistent with what OIRA cares about and at the same time um, is probably something that many people would, uh, there would be large spread, widespread agreement uh, on. Um, and so, so I do think it, that, that they have that, uh, that capacity and it's a way of putting that capacity to good use toward the second goal, which is, I do think that the use of prompt letters would show people that w- what OIRA cares about is not necessarily eliminating regulations, which is often the stereotype that people uh, have uh, associated with it, but rather sort of maximizing utility and maximizing social welfare. Now, there are all sorts of issues associated with that and questions of how we do that. But the prompt letters, I think, are a tool for sort of uh, reputational improvement as well. Sure, we'll stick with you for just a moment in the, in the chat function. And just a reminder, everybody, if you'd like to ask a question, uh, put it in, the, in the, the chat, but I was wrong, the Q&A function of Zoom. Just enter your question there, and I'll get to as many as I can. Uh, in the Q&A, Professor Lovers asks whether it's time to uh, increase the $100 million threshold for costs um, that we use to trigger the, the main uh, cost-benefit analysis at OIRA. Is, is it time for President Biden to raise that threshold? So the $100 million was always an arbitrary number um, when it was put in place in the first place. There's nothing special about $100 million that more than that is a, uh, is a big burden. And, you know, 101 is a big burden and 99 is a small one. Um, so I, I do think as, and Michael was talking earlier about Circular A4 um, and, in terms of revisiting that, revisiting where the right number is, is, uh, is I think a valuable exercise. I'm not going to endure a particular number there. But I do think that the principle, and previous administrations have talked about this, I think both the Bush and Obama administrations have talked about the idea that the bigger the burden, the greater the examination should be. And I mean, I think that principle is something that it would be nice to see the Biden administration get behind as well, regardless of where where there's a number. And in a sense, a number is just an arbitrary cutoff. And I, I think more the principle of, of using greater scrutiny within the executive branch, providing more detailed analysis on the bigger regulations, the regulations with larger, both benefits and costs, uh, I think is a principle that, uh, that, that, that should stick to any uh, revisiting of A4 or, or the executive orders. It's the, uh, it's the Minister of State's version of income tax bracket creep. That's uh, right. Mike, Jennifer, do you have any thoughts on the $100 million threshold? I'm going to 
mix things up a little bit and, and, and actually argue, um, perhaps contentiously, that I think that they sh the Biden administration um, should not waste any political capital on revisiting that right now. I think the reason why previous administrations haven't revisited it, despite being completely rational, it should be updated for inflation at the very least, right? The reason that they haven't done that is because, you know, it's going to take a lot of resources to um, try to get some kind of agreement to revise an executive order. And look, the Biden administration has a lot to do, okay? And, you know, I don't think that revising the $100 million standard is really a valuable use of their resources. And then more importantly, I think if the part of the point of revising it is to expand or contract the scope of the review, uh, that is to say to um, either sweep in some significant um, or, or particular regulations and subject them to greater scrutiny. Um, I can just say that, that that number is very malleable, by which I mean, um, you know, how it's calculated, you know, what is $100 million of impact and what's not. I mean, you know, these significance determinations, there's a lot of, you know, push and pull there that I think, you know, in practice, you know, if the OIRA, if OIRA wants to review something, you know, it can, it can probably make some argument that it fits the threshold such that it's not worth spending time or energy and actually revisiting the, the thing that's on paper. Hi. Uh, you know, it's funny, I, I want to agree with both of my co-panelists. So um, it's probably true that uh, on the list of priorities, this is just not very high. Um, and the general principle of proportional analysis is one that, you know, I, I would hope most reasonable people would be able to get behind. Um, and so, um, you know, whether that's, you know, uh, uh, done kind of somewhat informally um, or, you know, maybe you know, seven years from now, we'll see some updating to some of this stuff, but it's probably not going to be uh, top of top of the list. Now, in the Q&A, far and away, the, the, the most popular question is what's going to happen with independent agencies. And this is obviously a perennial subject dating back to all the way back to 1981. Uh, when President Reagan and his team first put out the original executive order on this, uh, the Gray Center's namesake, C. Boyden Gray, who was deeply involved in that process, he was describing what the Reagan administration had done, and he was asked about the independent agency issue, and, and his answer was, well, we've already sort of bitten off a lot to chew on with just the executive agencies. Uh, the independent agencies are, are a less pressing matter. They don't do as much, and we just want to focus on the executive agencies. Well, 40 years later, the independent agencies are, are doing a lot, and uh, there's been calls to bring them into the OIRA umbrella one way or another. Uh, we saw just a few weeks ago, before New Year's Eve, uh, the Justice Department released an executive order, that it, or sorry, an OLC, a Justice Department Office of Legal Counsel memo that actually had been prepared in October of 2019 on, on the, the president's assertion of power uh, over independent regulatory agencies. And so just in very general terms, uh, what do you think? Should the Biden administration uh, bring independent agencies into OIRA's coverage? Will it? I'll let anybody take that one first. Yeah, I, I'll take a first crack. Um, first, I just want to observe that historically speaking, there has been, and you alluded to this, Adam, you know, this increasing slow move to uh, increasing OIRA's influence over independent agencies. For example, you know, off the top of mind, you know, um, under the Obama administration, you know, Obama issued Executive Order 13579, I believe, that called for retrospective review um, for independent agencies. And now you're seeing the OLC memo that you alluded to. And so I think that the, that, you know, we're seeing this progression for, you know, finally a little bit more bold action. Uh, the point I want to emphasize is I think at this moment, the, um, 
greater willingness, I think, of independent agencies to welcome more OIRA involvement, not least because of ju the judicialization of cost-benefit analysis in cases like Business Roundtable. That is to say, I think it partly explains why many of the independent agencies themselves have bolstered uh, their cost-benefit analysis capacity. I look at the SEC. I look at the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. Ajit Pai has done a lot to um, have cost-benefit analysis be an important part of the FCC's work. Um, and so as a result, I think there is more, you know, an appetite, I think, for even the independent agencies to kind of go along with um, more wire um, oversight. A point that I, the last point I will end on, is I don't know if Jim Tazi's in this call, but I hear his voice in the back of my head, which is, what about resources? What about resources, right? I mean, you know, OIRA is not going to want to extend this oversight without more staff. Um, and I think, you know, both of these features kind of have to be um, considered together. That is the increasing desire for political control that has to come with some more resources. Jennifer, do you want to elaborate the point about staffing uh, before I turn to Mike and Stuart? That's been a, a perennial issue over the last many years. And, and in the Q&A, Barry Clendon asks, uh, does OIRA have too many staff or too few? Yeah, so I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but I don't have no reason to think that they've changed much. You know, um, in, in, you know, recently the staff is you know, varied from about 40 to 50 people. From its historical high, I think at one point it was about 90 people. Um, so, you know, so this is to say that, you know, I think some people believe, especially with the PRA obligations, Paperwork Reduction Act obligations that OIRA already has, that um, in fact, it's not too many staff, that there should be more staff um, devoted to uh, both the PRA function and regulatory review. Um, people are frustrated with the long delays for the federal collection um, of information because of the PRA process. And I think that that point cannot be um, overemphasized, how important that part of the wire is. Um, and, um, and I think devoting more staff to that would help clear the way both for the P uh, federal collection information um, but also uh, regulatory review and all the robust ways that the Biden administration wants to do. Stuart, maybe we'll turn to you next. Any thoughts on both the independent agencies issue and relatedly just OIRA capacity in general? Yes, I'll start with the capacity issue as another former OIRA person like Jennifer. I have very similar uh, sympathies and experience there. I mean, with being required to review thousands of information collections each year and a large number of significant regulations each year, um, the workload is, is is really large and it just gets bigger. I mean, OIRA keeps getting new responsibilities thrown on it with each administration or, or new statutes passed, giving them more responsibilities. And certainly the expansion of OIRA can be, can be framed in a way that would help the regulatory process, would help getting regulations out. If you're going to have an OIRA that is going to review significant regulations, then having more people there makes it go faster. Now, maybe you could also couple it with a, an enforcement of the 90-day limit in the executive order um, and, and, and something like that. But, the, but I do think that there is, uh, and, and I think there's evidence in the literature 
the sort of the more time regulations spend at OIRA, the more attention they get, the better the analyses come out. And so, um, so I, I do think that there is uh, an argument to be made for more staff there that's not normative in terms of its regulatory implications. Um, in terms of independent agencies, in addition, to, as Jennifer noted, more staff would, I think, be necessary in, in that case um, if, you, if you're going to expand OIRA's purview. Um, reading the tea leaves, it's, ve- it's very hard to say. There do seem to be a lot of signs out there that we're moving towards independent agency uh, regulations being reviewed by OIRA. Um, but the tea leaves have been there for a long time and it, and it hasn't happened yet. And whether that's something uh, Biden wants to spend political capital on, I, I'm not sure, at least early in the administration. Mike? Yeah, so, so I, I agree that skimping on OIRA staff is penny wise and pound foolish. I mean, these are rules that have like collectively billions of dollars worth of uh, economic consequences. And, you know, we're slowing them down and underanalyzing them to save like, you know, I don't know, a few million dollars uh, in, in staffing costs. It just uh, doesn't make any sense. So, uh, yeah, so I, so I agree on the budget front. Um, with respect to independent agencies, so I think I'm a bad law professor because I you know, I'm less interested in the kind of the legal niceties of this question, because I think there are and there are some legal niceties, like can the president direct independent agencies the same way that he or she would direct, you know, executive and does the president have directive power over agencies in general and, you know, that kind, you know, versus supervisory and, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, So, and I think actually the debate about independent agencies largely turns on that kind of thing. So the reason I think that um, is you know, the executive order, 1266, isn't judicially enforceable. You know, EPA administrator can issue a regulation without going through OIRA, and that regulation, once it's printed in the Federal Register, is just as valid as any other regulation. It doesn't have to go through the OIRA process. There's an internal mechanism, which is if an EPA administrator does that, a president would likely fire that EPA administrator. So that's the enforcement mechanism. And as we know, that enforcement mechanism doesn't really exist with respect to independent agencies. I mean, I guess we could ask, like, is would that then constitute like good cause that would allow the president to fire it, which that sounds a little much to me, to be honest with you. Um, And so what we're really talking about is like kind of norms and customs and practices. Um, And I think that, you know, Jennifer and Stuart are right, is that there's, you know, some evolving kind of motion in this direction. And there's also, as Jennifer pointed out, the courts. Um, you know, the SEC has gotten dinged in the business roundtable decision very famously, you know, the back and forth on, um, on op- the open internet and net neutrality rulemakings um, at the FCC, you know, there's kind of been a hydraulic pressure towards more economic analysis. So, it, so there's various forces on independent agencies that might encourage them to do more cost benefit analysis. And if they're going to be in that business, sending it over to OIRA to get a second set of eyes is not a bad idea. Um, and so I think that's kind of mostly what's going on and, and making OIRA available for that. And I'm encouraging, you know, a president encouraging administration, uh, uh, independent agencies to do that. Um, you know, even chatting, you know, with, uh, uh, with potential appointees and the like, ensuring that they're funded, you know, along the lines to do the economic analysis, you know, creating the process of for OIRA, you know, just in terms of, you know, there's desk officers that are charged with that kind of thing. So I think that that's, that's the, that's the main thing. But, 
But I always think there's going to be a difference between the executive agencies and independent agencies, just because of the kind of basic nature of, of how commission decision-making works, the bipartisan nature of the independent agencies um, and their, and their independent nature, the fact that they're not under the executive in the, in the same, uh, in the same way. So, um, so I think that that's going to maintain, even if we see more cost-benefit analysis and even some more involvement by OIRA. On the interest on the uh, independent agencies issue, just the fact that these are multi-member commissions, bipartisan, uh, deliberative, I mean, that does add an interesting wrinkle to to the basic approach of cost-benefit analysis overseen by OIRA. And it'd be interesting to see how that would actually play out in terms of return letters and what would happen if things were sent back to agencies. But I, I do want to turn to an issue that's been raised a little bit in the discussion, and it's it's alluded to in the Q and A. As well, this question about the interaction between uh, the agencies, the White House, and the courts um, is a little far afield of our original subject, but we've it's come up enough times that it, maybe it's not as far afield as I, I thought. Uh, as has been mentioned a few times, the courts have become more and more interested in the mechanics of cost-benefit analysis. Um, there was the business roundtable case in the D.C. Circuit that's been mentioned, Michigan versus EPA from a few years ago, the Justice Scalia opinion for the court that came very close to saying that if the cost of a rule dramatically outweigh the benefits of the rule, that might be per se arbitrary. Um, and at the same time, as Daniel Walters points out in the Q&A, um, there's going to be real questions about how quickly the Biden administration can just turn around things that the Trump administration did, how quickly it can undo them. And so if any of you have any further thoughts on this relationship between the courts and, and what the agencies are going to be doing under White House oversight, um, uh, please go ahead. Yeah, so maybe I'll just start really quickly with that. So um, I think that this administration is going to be very mindful of its interaction with the courts. Uh, I mean, the Trump administration had an atrocious record with the courts um, for various reasons. I think the Biden administration is almost certainly going to have a better um, uh, record, but it's because it will be much more mindful of the reality of judicial review. Um, but that means that um, things are going to go a little slower than they would otherwise go because you have to go through these, you know, processes appropriately. Um, you know, doing cost benefit, again, the progressive argument to jettison cost benefit analysis doesn't look great if the result is just a bunch of rules get struck down. Um, and so I think that this administration is, um, it would just be shocking if they weren't orienting almost all of their thought um, to the reality that, um, that there's going to be probing judicial review. Um, and, and that's just, it's just not worth doing stuff if it's just going to get knocked down by court. I think I'd also add to that um, one theory or explanation for why the Trump administration did so atrociously with the courts, because there's been a suggestion that, it, you know, maybe just wasn't a focus or a priority. But I think a lot of it was a lack of capacity because of the Trump administration, the White House's relationship with career staff, the ones that are, you know, have the expertise to write really solid, high quality cost benefit analyses um, in the agencies. Um, and I think with the Biden administration's posture to um, career servants, I expect that to change partly for that result, that I think career staff will be welcomed into the room when these cost benefit analyses are being written. They will not be written by as, as much by political appointees that I've never seen cost-benefit analyses before. And I think as a result, for that reason alone, we're going to see much more success with the courts. That isn't, you know, directly a one-to-one -one function just of the time span. You're just going to have, you know, better people on it. So I think um, there's going to be a better record. Um, 
And the, the other thing just to note, um, if it's a normative, you can pitch this as a normative question of, um, do we want more judicial oversight of cost-benefit analysis? And there are certainly um, different camps on this. I mean, for what it's worth, personally, I think courts should get out of the business of cost-benefit analysis. Um, for the reasons that I just alluded to, I think judges are generalists. I think they should be highly deferential um, to the cost-benefit analyses that are coming out of agencies, and there should be a light touch. Um, but certainly, again, the tea leaves are suggesting that that role is going to be a little bit more robust. I decry that that trend, but I recognize it. Um, the only thing I'd, I'd add um, is that, uh, and there's a good paper from Bethany Davis-Knoll and, uh, and Ricky Revez uh, on how the Trump's record in the courts really provides opportunities for the Biden administration. There are a bunch of cases where the Trump administration lost and the Biden administration will have to make decisions on whether to appeal those losses. Um, there is the Trump precedent of asking courts to hold rules in abeyance while uh, while they work on replacements. Um, all of those are techniques where I think you'll see the interaction between the legal system and executive branch, and maybe even OI will be asked to, to weigh in on these things um, in terms of reversing specific regulations. So the, the fact that the Trump re- administration did have such a, a tough time in the courts will provide a lot of opportunities for the Biden administration. Issue that's come up a little bit just in these last few moments has been the fact that the arrival of the Biden administration means a, a less adversarial relationship between the political appointees uh, in the White House and the agencies and, uh, and the career civil servants. Um, I, I'd suggest that says a lot about you know the political appointees, but it also says a lot about the civil servants. And uh, we've seen again an interesting relationship, to say the least, over the last four years. Uh, Jennifer, you wrote your paper on civil servant dis. Uh, was it called um, civil civil service civil service disobedience? Um, um, thinking through that relationship, I, mean, I don't want to dwell on it too much because I do want to turn before we finish to the equality issue. But I mean, could somebody disabuse me of, of my worries that, that there might be this sort of structural um, adversarial nature between, you know, say conservative or Republican political appointees and and the experts who are doing the cost benefit analyses? So just to be clear, you, you're, you're, um, the question is, you know, uh, wh- what do we expect these new dynamics to be under a Democratic administration? And, and well, I'm, they- yeah, I'm, I'm a little worried. We all sort of take for granted, and, and maybe rightly so, that that um, the, the Biden administration will have sort of an easier go of it in, in its, its cooperation with civil servants than the, the Trump administration did. I mean, needless to say, a lot of that was fueled by President Trump himself in ways in which, you know, I've been criticizing for four years. But but I mean, should we be worried if there is sort of just a natural alignment between the civil service and, and the political appointees on this issue with one party rather than another? I see. I see. Now I see the course of your question. I mean, of course. Right. I mean, so there's empirical evidence that does suggest, indeed, that, you know, many career civil servants are left-leaning. And um, we should be concerned if, in fact, the career civil servants are able to push policy in a direction for which they have no political accountability in the way that political appointees do. So normatively, absolutely. Um, That said, I think it is worth noting that there are these very strong norms that used to um, exist more about, you know, how um, those in agencies should conduct themselves that I would like to think serve as some internal constraint. I mean, 
Stuart would know even better than I, many of them are trained, right, to to appreciate these norms, that they serve the president and they should not act on their personal preferences. Um, but I, I want to acknowledge that it is a real concern if, in fact, civil servants are acting on these personal preferences and are able to do so. So the hope would be that these norms um, are restored. I do not think, to be clear, that civil servant disobedience is something that we should celebrate or that we should want. To the contrary, I don't. I think we do not want that. Um, the last thing I will just note, however, is that I do not think it is historically a feature of um, agencies under Republican administrations. I think there are also examples of this kind of resistance, if you will, under um, um, Democratic administrations, but usually from different agencies. And I think you're going to see this, especially with the Department of Homeland Security, um, the right-leaning agencies, if you want to use Clinton-Lewis kind of measures for identifying those, right? I mean, these are agencies, in addition to DHS, you know, the the security agencies, um, uh, national security-oriented agencies, um, like the um, there are other ones besides those, you know, Commerce Department and so on, um, where, um, it, but most publicly, I think ICE um, enforcement officers have been opposed to immigration policies under Democratic administrations, and they've been very vocal about it and not shy. So I just want to um, complicate the historical record to, to say that it exists on both sides, but I do not think that it should be, I think it's something that we should decry. And um, I think that the, um, explanations of why it occurred, namely the hostility of this, the last administration, outgoing administration, to the career civil servants explains a lot of it. And hopefully we see the natural um, dissipation, if you will, of that disobedience in an administration that is not so hostile to career civil servants. Yeah, we only have, a, we only have I hate to, to, to cut the question off, but I, I do want to make sure we get to one last point that's very, very important. Um, it's in the Q&A, but in our earlier chat, it talked about it too. And it is this question about um, other considerations beyond cost-benefit analysis and their role in OIRA and, and White House oversight. Uh, in the Q&A, uh, James Goodwin asks, some have advanced the criticism that cost-benefit analysis is a barrier to promoting social justice and equity and regulatory decision-making, which is potentially significant given that Biden has indicated that his administration will give special attention to these these considerations. Can cost-benefit analysis be deployed in a manner to promote social justice and equity? And if so, how? Mike, this is, maybe we'll go to you first, and uh, this will be our last round of questions. Um, this is something you touch on at length in, in your book, and I know it's something you've given a lot of thought to. So maybe we'll start with you. How should the Biden administration approach these other considerations in the context of, of of White House regulatory oversight. Great. So, so the basic you know principle behind cost benefit analysis is the idea that you know regulatory decisions or policy decisions generally the the standard we should hold them to is maximizing social well being, some very broad sense. And there's all kinds of other considerations that you might want to bring to bear: uh, distributional considerations, social social justice along many different dimensions, uh, liberty, individual liberty, individual autonomy. And so, I think there's kind of like two things that ways that we can kind of think about this. So one is uh, we can think of some of these um, broad, other, let's call them other moral dimensions as side constraints on a cost benefit analysis so that we maximize uh, social well-being, but subject to like certain liberty constraints. Like we don't impose freedom, you know, limits on people's speech or thought, even if it might be justified from a cost benefit perspective or something like that. So that's kind of one general framework that we can think about this. But another one, and, and that's interesting from like a philosophical perspective, but I think that the other uh, important uh, uh, 
factor here to take into consideration is that's super practical is about agenda setting. And the fact of the matter is that a lot of uh, uh, rules that are cost benefit justified also promote social justice. There's in no way are those two things in some kind of necessary conflict. And um, so efficiency criteria and other uh, criteria are actually overlap. And that's often, I think, what happens in um, in uh, rational administrations is what they do is they seek out those areas of overlap and they emphasize those. Um, and so, you know, um, rules to protect the air um, are justified in cost benefit terms and also on environmental justice terms, also on distribution in distributional terms and so on. Um, rules that reduce regulatory burdens um, can be very cost, uh, cost benefit justified depending on the context. And they also might enhance liberty. So that tends to be my uh, personal way of kind of thinking about, just from a practical perspective, um, looking for, you know, instead of looking for conflict uh, between different value sets, looking for overlap. And I think that's how you make policy in a pluralistic society. I think that's how you make uh, policy in a, you know, in a party that's uh, quite diverse. And um, that's, I suspect how they, well, I don't know how this administration would proceed, but that's, I think, uh, how prior administrations have proceeded um, uh, when they've been successful. Well, thanks, Mike. And thanks again, Mike, for joining us today. Um, Stuart, any thoughts on, on this? Sure. Um, I, I mean, I think one other piece is both the Obama administration and actually to a limited degree, the Bush administration uh, tried to, to think about adding, you know, requirements for distributional considerations into uh, into cost benefit analysis. The Obama administration definitely emphasized it. That said, you saw it in very few RIAs uh, during either administration, um, and in part because it's hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. There's some good papers on it, but they tend to get pretty abstract pretty quickly. Um, and so um, one thing you might see the Biden administration do if it follows through on this commitment to environmental justice, social justice, is to re-emphasize the, the role of distributional um, uh, factors in, in CBA. Um, and I, I think that would be a good thing. Um, I'll conclude my, my comments with, I think that um, sort of summing up, the what you'll see is that the Biden administration will move quickly and get a lot of credit for sort of the big ticket headline items, getting rid of the two for one order, et cetera. But the real challenge is sort of what's underneath that, all of the work that needs to go into rebuilding a regulatory system in the executive branch and restoring faith in it. Um, and that's going to be a, a mission that's going to take most of its four years. Thanks, Stuart. I'm glad you're able to join us today. Um, Jennifer, looks like you're going to get the last word. And, and I noticed in the Q&A, Chef Melnick asks uh, if people have predictions on who the next OIRA administrator will be. I, I didn't uh, pose that question. If you all want to blurt out your, 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 your guess, go ahead. But I assume you don't. Jennifer, why don't you uh, have a last word on, on this, gonna... this issue and anything else you'd like to yeah, not going to take that bait, but I, I will just, <laughs> I will just, um, just say, say this, which is, um, you know, I think Mike and, and his work and his work with Kalal has been so persuasive to show there is no necessary um, conflict between social justice concerns and cost benefit analysis. But I want to recognize as a descriptive positive matter that um, indeed cost benefit analysis has historically um, sometimes been used as a bludgeon or as an argument, a counter argument to those that do invoke social justice concerns. And I think it's important to recognize that. And I'll just end by saying that I think that the concept of cost benefit analysis is 
so malleable. And I think it really depends on this question of what does it entail? Does it include distributional weights, as Stuart said? Does it include unquantified um, benefits um, and qualitative, um, qualitative benefits, expressive benefits, and so on, all the different other features that we could associate with cost-benefit analysis? Um, and also, what is the role of cost-benefit analysis? Is it just an information-forcing function, as some people have written, just to get kind of, you know, pros and cons in a out on the table in a systematic way, or is it more of a decision rule? And the more it's a decision rule and costs are really prioritized, then I think it does have the function that the, the questioner or the commenter has, has raised. But it doesn't have to be that way. It can just be a way to um, put, informa put information on the table. I will end by saying that I think a lot of the um, role of cost-benefit analysis should be linked back to the earlier point about participation. Okay, because I think a lot of information about distributional impacts can perhaps be come into the administrative state um, the more we can get other groups in the notice and comment process and in other features of actually being able to have their voices be heard. Thanks, Jennifer, and thanks again, everybody, for joining us today. Before we go, just a brief word about this webinar series. As I mentioned at the outset, this is the first in a series of discussions we'll be having in the weeks ahead about future of regulatory policy and law under the Biden administration. We're calling it the Administrative State in Transition. And you'll find updates about future webinars on our website and in our email list. Uh, all this episode and future episodes, the recordings we've posted online and video, we'll also send out the audio recordings. And our podcast, which we recently retitled uh, in light of the name of the center, uh, we renamed the podcast Gray Matters. And so feel free to look up the recordings there. As it happens, our next webinar will be in just two days. This week on Thursday, I'll discuss energy and environmental policy with Professor Jonathan Adler, Professor Lisa Heinzerling, and the American Clean Power Association's General Counsel, Gene Grace. That's going to be on Thursday at 1 o'clock. And for the weeks following the inauguration, we'll be planning webinars on several more issues beginning February 11th, when we'll be talking about tech policy. And given so much focus in today's discussion on on the role of the president in regulatory oversight. It's just worth pointing out that this is the 20th anniversary of Elena Kagan's uh, seminal article on presidential administration. That's a subject for which the Gray Center will be doing a conference uh, in fall. And so I hope you'll join us for our upcoming webinars. Uh, and on behalf of the Gray Center and the Scalia Law School, thanks for joining us today. Thank you.